So last week uh, was probably less painful for you than it was me when I had to call Andrew Zakari, Pastor Andrew, at noon on Saturday and say I was sick. And I never wanted to do that to someone. It's happened to me on the other end as an associate pastor. I had to fill in for uh, my boss, my senior pastor, but I didn't want to do that to him. But you got a nice break. And Andrew preached to himself about anger (laughs) since I called him at the last minute. And I wish I could say that uh, with an extra week of preparation that this sermon will be twice as good. I'm not sure about that. It might have gotten worse. But as we've been looking at the, the, the first chapters of Genesis... We've been given a sense of how life really works. We learn about the purpose of creation. We learn about what we were made for. And all of these realities are foundational to understanding our place in this world. But they also help us to understand how things have gone so badly wrong. This morning, I want to look at really two very important issues. One is work, sort of a continuation of what we looked at a couple weeks ago. But I also want to look at community. Because God, in these earliest chapters, as Moses outlines for us these foundational understandings of the world, we understand what work is about, what work ought to be, but also about community. And making sure that we have a balance between work and building community as well. And why do, you, why do I think this is so important? Well, I, I'll just tell you. I, I had this experience in 2008. I was working here at uh, Westerly Road Church, and now Stonehill Church. And then I moved to North Africa in November of, of uh, 2008. And boy, to say it was a culture shock is an understatement. In Princeton, time is very important. Not so much in North Africa. Relationships in North Africa are very important. I would say not so much in Princeton. Productivity is paramount in Princeton. Connection and relationships was paramount in North Africa. Let me illustrate. I learned pretty quickly that in in North Africa, when I paid the rent for the apartment that we were living in, or the house that we eventually lived in, it was an elaborate procedure. I couldn't just go give the money and be done with it. That's what I wanted to do. Because why? Because I've lived in Princeton. No, I had to meet the landlord for breakfast. And we had to get coffee. And then we had to get a croissant. And then we talked and talked and talked. And that was true from, from, from month one when I couldn't even speak hardly anything in French to my landlord. And on and on that meeting went. And then I would pay him the rent money and he wrote me a receipt. It drove me crazy. In Princeton, if you scheduled a lunch meeting in Princeton, and this is still true, that's going to be probably a 55-minute meeting. And if anybody is late, that is viewed as somewhat disrespectful. In North Africa, when you made a lunch date, nobody was expected to be on time. 
In fact, if you were on time, you would eat alone for a very long time. But if you left two hours into the lunch, that would have been viewed as disrespectful. It's just different. It's very different. And I honestly felt somewhat convicted being in North Africa. I was completely all in on focusing on my work, yes, and on doing a good job, yes, and on doing everything I needed to do to, to, to make work work, so to speak. But I found that living in North America and living in mid-Jersey, I was less intentional and less focused on building relationships. Work was more important, honestly. And the truth of the matter is, we need to think clearly about work, and we need to think clearly, biblically, about relationships and community. And that's what I want us to focus on in thinking about work, thinking about community, and then thinking about marriage as well. So let's think about work. Since we are made in the image of God, we mirror God. And since God created this world, we were meant to mirror God's activity by managing the world under his authority. Notice verse 5 in chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Part of our purpose as being made in the image of God is that we would manage the world, manage the world that he made under his authority for God's glory, but for the flourishing of other human beings. We are supposed to steward the world that God has made. Take a look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice this command is given to human beings before sin enters the world. Work is not the product of sin. Work was given to us before there was even any sin in the world because it's good, given to us by God, so that we mirror what God has done in creation by managing his world. And I suspect there's a few of you in this room you view work in an unbiblical manner. You view it as drudgery. How do I get through these 40-something hours so I can get to the weekend? Some people view work as simply a means to an end. It's a means to retirement. It's not a biblical view of work. And I would say even if you're younger and you're not going out to work, I know some of your parents would like to send you to work when you're 10, part of their retirement vision for themselves, right? For a student, if you're in elementary school, you're younger, right, or you're at middle school or a high school or even, you know, you're in your university, your work is, to, is, is school, is to go and prepare yourself so you can do something after, after, you know, after graduation. Your work has been given to you by God. You shouldn't look at it as a drudgery. You shouldn't look at it as, oh, here we go again or as a means to an end, it's part of God's good gift to you. And it's part of how you image God to the world is through your work. Your work is important to God, all of it. 
In verse 16 we read, the Lord God took the man, uh, excuse me, and the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God boundaries the ethics of living in his world. Now there was only one rule back then, don't eat of one tree. Throughout the rest of scripture, we're given, we're given a whole lot of other commandments and, and ethical standards that we need to apply. But the reality is God set boundaries uh, of what should happen to his world and how we should operate in his world. And that means that our work should be done to the glory of God consistent with what he has commanded us to be and commensurate with who he is as a God of truth and justice. So a couple of questions for you. Are you treating your employees well? If you're a manager, you own your own company, do you treat your employees well in all ways, financially, emotionally, the hours you give them, the work balance that they can have? Are you treating your clients or your customers with respect and integrity, meeting their needs justly, honestly, fairly? Are you using the physical resources of the earth with appropriate stewardship? Are you working for your company well, but also recognizing that God is your ultimate employer, so to speak? Making sure that what you do is for God, ultimately? Are you connecting every part of your work to God and his making you in his image? All of these connections are crucial for us to make. We should never downgrade our work as unimportant or simply a means to an end. All work, legitimate work, done under the Lordship of Christ is very valuable and important and necessary. But we also can't make work our God. And I would suggest in our area of the country, I think that's a real danger for most of us. Where our identity and our purpose and our our, our goals are all wrapped up in what happens at work. I think the reality is is that probably a number of us have not thought deeply enough about our work, about how it needs to be connected with God, how it's intrinsically built into us being made in the image of God. And we, we all struggle with seeing how our work connects to God's purposes, but they do, and we need to figure that out. One of my big concerns is you come to church on Sunday and you worship the Lord. I heard you singing. And then I feel like you go off to work tomorrow or go off to school tomorrow and what we do today is somehow disconnected from tomorrow. But it's not. One of my concerns, as I mentioned in the introduction, is that we can be so focused on work that we neglect the other features of what it means to be made in the image of God. So now I want us to move into how do we think about community? You need to look at verse 18, which is a shocking verse. Remember, when God created the world in Genesis 1, he said it was good, he said it was good, and it was good. And then when he made human beings, he said it's very good. But in verse 18, this verse sort of shocks you. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. 
And you think, wait a minute, I, th- I thought it was good. It was good, but, but it's not good for man to be alone. There seems to be some kind of a lack here that God recognizes. It was not good that Adam was alone. He had no counterpart. The animals were not human beings. He had no counterpart there. Adam is alone, and God evaluates this as a lack. Now, obviously, we're going to get in just a few minutes to, to the issue of marriage, right? But I, I want to look at this text from a, a, a much more larger or macro picture. Yes, God will rectify the situation with Eve, but I think, I think Moses here is describing something far deeper and far more pervasive. Remember when God said in verse 126, he says, let us make man in our image. There's the plural there. God is sort of, you see there, sort of an incipient understanding that God exists. Yes, he's one God in essence, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in other words, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we were made to have a person personal relationship with a God who exists in a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's also true that we were made to not only relate to this God who lives in community with himself, three persons in one God, but we were also meant to live in community so that we could live out the image of God together and to the world. We must live in community. It's not good for man to be alone. What's interesting, if you read, I've read a number of articles recently in the Atlantic and other places that talks about loneliness being an epidemic in our country. People don't have friends, people are alone, they're too busy for friends, they're too busy to build community, so to speak. Because our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we must relate to Him, but we must relate to Him in His community, but we must relate to Him in a community that we have together. And we know that from Scripture that this is much bigger than simply marriage. Yes, marriage is a gift of of God to, to, to some. I don't have time to look at it, but in 1 Corinthians 7, it also says that singleness is equally a gift of God given to us. And we know from Scripture, as Jesus says, marriage is not going to be in heaven. I mean, it's not going to be in the next life. In other words, our communion together, without sin, and our communion with the God who lives in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and because we won't have sin, that communion, that intimacy, marriage will no longer be needed or necessary. When you see that, you realize that when God says to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone, it's bigger than just marriage. It's pointing to all of our needs of community. In other words, in some sense, community is not an option for the believer to live fully according to God's purposes. In other words, to know God fully, we must actually be in community with other believers. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, a great little section there. He's talking about he he and his two friends, Charles and Ronald. So it's C.S. Lewis, Charles, and Ronald. They've got three friends. He's got, three, he's got two friends. They, they, they do a lot together. Well, Charles dies, which is tragic for that group of three friends. 
And C.S. Lewis actually thought that when my friend, uh, you, know, you know, died, when Charles died, maybe I would have more of Ronald. Because, you know, two is, can be more intimate. But what C.S. Lewis found out that now that Charles was gone, he had less of Ronald. Because Charles brought out things in Ronald that C.S. Lewis couldn't do. Couldn't do it. And so, as C.S. Lewis describes this, he says, being in community means I get the, the, the community that I have, even if it's multiple people, actually helps me to know everyone better. And the loss of one person actually means I'm going to know people less. So he goes on to say that the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition with each which, which each has of God. He goes on to say, it, it, it's, it's obvious that the seraphim and Isaiah's vision and Isaiah 6 says, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. And my fear for each of us is that if we are not deliberate, if we are not intentional and vigorous in our cultivation of community, Work can crowd out legitimate community, and without community, we are not living out our purpose. And we will have an impoverished spiritual life because we get to know God better in community. And without that community that's rooted in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do not live out the fundamental purposes that God has for us. So that's how we need to think and respond about community. Very briefly, if you want to read a good book on marriage, read Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. And may God bless you as you read that. I need to summarize this very briefly. Again, back to 2.18. The Lord God said it is not good for the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. What Moses also describes, the need for community at large, he describes the most intimate of communion between a man and a woman as defined here by Scripture. And what I, I, again, I want to fly kind of a little bit higher, 30,000 feet, so to speak. I think one of the problems in marriage is you divorce it from being made in the image of God. In other words, it's easy to view marriage as this wonderful institution designed to meet your needs. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. I have this uh, test, uh, prayer and rich test. All the pastors use it when we do premarital counseling. They have this uh, distortion index for it. In other words, the test can tell who of the couple is more unrealistic. And guess what? The younger, the people who are engaged and are preparing for marriage, the younger they are, the more the distortion of what marriage is gonna be like. Someone sent me a really funny video it's beautiful. I'm going to try it the next time I do a wedding, and then I won't have to do any more weddings. <laughs> it was called, it was kind of like this honesty, how to get married but honestly. And so they had the husband, you know, the couple was up there in the front of the church, and they were ready to get married. And, and they, instead of going through the vows, they just said, we're going to be honest. You're gonna, you need to be honest with one another. And so the husband started and said, I am a very broken person. I am a self-absorbed narcissist. 
I probably won't be able to meet your needs very well because I'm very, very, very broken. But I'm glad you signed on to marry me and be with me for the rest of my life. And then the woman did the same thing. And then they had a responsive reading for the congregation in which they all said, we are broken. And this is my, I love to do this as a responsive reading. The, the whole congregation goes, we, we have been idiots. They all said it, we have been idiots. And we will be idiots again, and we'll be idiots again. It was honest, it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging. But again, marriage is not simply to meet our needs. Yes, it can do that. But if you don't connect your marriage relationship to the fundamental issue, you were made in the image of God, and together, as husband and wife, as male and female, you're supposed to come together to manage the world together under his authority. It's a lot more about what he wants than what you want or what you think you need. It's also interesting, he talks about, the, the, I will make a helper for him. And, and I, you know, you read this, I don't know how many uh, young married couples, they say, because oh, I read that text, and they go, oh, I'm a helper for him? What, I'm the errand? I'm the errand person in this relationship? No, the word helper is a very strong word. It's, it's used of God mostly in the Old Testament. It's a word that means the man can't do it in a sense, sense that you need to come together because both male and female, husband and wife, are vitally important. It's actually a word of honor and importance. And then we read in verse 224, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In paradise, this vision for marriage that God had is that a husband and and, and a wife, a male and a female, would come together and that they would be free to come together as, and to form this one fresh relationship. It's a total giving of, of each other to one another. It's, it's designed to be faithful uh, together, and it's, and it's designed to be fruitful if God would uh, bless you with children so that other people made in the image of God could be brought into the world to image the glory of God. But of course, this is pretty hard now that the fall has occurred. Notice the last verse. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you see here, before sin entered the world, the husband and wife completely naked, completely knowing one another. And I think the word is not just simply literally, which I think it is, but I think it's even deeper than that. They were in a relationship not marred by sin where they could open up with each other, be completely transparent with one another. Adam could know Eve, Eve could know Adam, and there was no shame because sin had not complicated the world and this relationship. Well, because of sin, it's pretty difficult for any of us in community, generally, or in a married relationship, to fully disclose ourselves because we know we haven't been the people we ought to be. And the problem we have now is that when we try to disclose ourselves, it's very difficult because we think, if I disclose everything that I am, how will I know my wife or my husband will, maybe they'll reject me. And so what do we do? We hide. We don't disclose, and that creates distance. 
We're sinful instead of trying to serve and live out our image of God by being in this relationship where we serve one another for, to fulfill God's purpose. We begin to look at the marriage as what, what do I need out of it? And I'm not getting what I need. So then there's conflict and we can shame each other. And they were not ashamed. So how do you deal with that? Well, just briefly, read Keller's book. How is this rectified in a Christian marriage? Well, Jesus Christ came, did he not? And he hung naked on a cross and took our sin upon him and our shame upon him. And then gives us his righteousness so that we can have this communion with God can be restored, which is central to our purpose as being made in the image of God. But in a marriage relationship, when two people, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman come together, which is God's design, and then begins to, to, to struggle with sin, but it, it's precisely the cross of Jesus Christ that allows you to open up your life and, be, and disclose yourself to your spouse without shame because Jesus himself has already taken your shame. We cannot have marriages that flourish apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. It gives us guidance, gives us wisdom. I pray that you would change us by your word. I pray that you would help us to pursue work in a way that is honoring to you. I pray that you would help us to pursue relationships and community and that those of us who are married would pursue that relationship, that most intimate of communities, according to the gospel, according to your word, for the glory of God, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Be Thou My Vision.